When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi there, Jack Riccardi. Welcome to the Jack Riccardi Show on 550 and 107.1 KTSA. I like to say I'm a poor man south of Richmond. Uh, but welcome to our dreadful little show. You can join the show at 210-599-5555. Yesterday we were talking about how you're not going to beat Joe Biden in the election because Joe Biden is old or Joe Biden is confused. Uh, I want to take that a little larger um, I want to go a little bigger with that today because I started to think about it and I was thinking about it this morning. Um, the most influential political figure in my lifetime was Ronald Reagan. And Ronald Reagan was also, I think you would agree, the most successful Republican really of the last 100 years. 40th president of the United States, two terms, 81 to 89 two landslide victories, the most meaningful change in American foreign policy since World War II. And the term Reagan Democrat referred to the vast number of voters he converted to Reagan voters from Democratic Party membership and Democratic Party patterns and people that voted for him once or both times. But if you're too young to remember Reagan's presidency, let me tell you how he did it and why it mattered so much to me. The first time I could vote when I was 18 years old, or I was actually, I think I might have been 19, but 18 or 19, the first time I was able to vote, I voted for Ronald Reagan. I ran to that polling place at the Horace Mann Elementary School in my town on Watertown Street, Newtonville, Massachusetts. I ran to cast that vote, and they were voting on those old time machines that you you had the curtain and you were in a little booth and there were little switches that you manipulated like little rocker switches and then when you p- positioned all the switches over the candidate names that you were choosing in all the races you pulled a lever and it cast the votes and it opened the curtain and you got to be over a certain age to remember voting machines like that but that's how I voted and I remember it and I remember it was Reagan and I remember that as cynical as I was, and remember how cynical you were as a teenager, I, I was idealistic about what this man was saying. Because this was a time, I had grown up in a time that had a lot of fear. There were f- constant fears of nuclear war. There were constant fears of economic collapse. There was decay in American power abroad and American pride and infrastructure at home. And it was very popular if you were a quote-unquote conservative in the 70s and 80s to lament all these things, to describe them in stark detail. There were all these old guys that were on firing line and, you know, McNeil Lehrer and uh, on the editorial pages of the newspapers and they were crusty old conservative guys writing about how everything had gone to hell. And now all of a sudden, here comes the guy 
who's optimistic and sunny and telling jokes. But not just to cover up. He, he really thinks we can turn this thing around. He's got these constructive ideas that we can win the Cold War, not just contain it. And he makes the case that the country is worth fighting for and that the fight can be won. And that was the turning point with Reagan, because up until that point, conservatism was good at telling you what the issues were, but it made it sound like we're probably sunk. And when you're 18, you don't want to believe that about your own country. So Reagan would smile, he would joke, he was self-deprecating, but he was an optimist. Yesterday we were talking about is are we like the end of the Roman Empire? That's a very seductive thought pattern to fall into. Because if you decide that this whole thing is is sunk, the cheese has slid off the cracker, then there's really no work to do, right? I mean you don't have to you don't have to fight the fight. You don't have to play the game if there's absolutely no way you can win it. So we've made our points about twenty twenty. Okay, we have made our points about election rigging and fraud and dark dollars and weird electoral procedures and all the shenanigans that went on. We have said it. We have laid it out. It is still under investigation. They know that we know. We have seen the way institutions have massed against us from higher education to Bud Light. We've, we've seen it. We know. They know. They know we know. The media, totally in the bag for the Democrats. But we know we've called them on it. And here's how I know we've called them on it. Across the board, everywhere you look, their numbers, their ratings are down. They have lost a lot of people and their faith. So Reagan showed us a way to go here. First, you don't give up. He won on his third run for the presidency. And everybody said he was too old. And everybody said that Watergate had wrecked the GOP. And he ran during bad times. Terrible times. But he didn't preach that the times were bad. He talked about better times. He had come of age politically when FDR ran for president. And FDR, very different guy, obviously, but FDR also ran on that ebullience. It doesn't have to be like this. You don't need me to tell you it's bad. You know that. It doesn't have to be like this. Reagan was a man of the West. He faced West when he took the oath of office in 1981. He was the first president to face West And he didn't just face West because he was from the West. He faced that direction because that was the destiny of the United States. That's how he grew into a great country. So we need to not just cry about what has happened, what has been done, what has been lost. We need to not sound like we are preparing excuses for our eventual defeat. What political party would ever win an election if its main message was, we got robbed? 
It's not fair. How is that a winning message? I'm not, again, I'm not disputing the claims. It can't be the campaign. And if you want to win, you have to sound like you're running to win this election, not litigate the last one. So again, I I think it's more than just saying you're not going to beat Biden because Biden is old. You're not going to beat Biden for any of the things I just listed. I can't think of an election, to be honest, where we just threw a president out of office because he was disappointing or underwhelming. There had to be something else. There had to be something clearer, better, stronger, more attractive. That's what has to happen this time. Tell me your thoughts on that. 210-599-5555. We are winning. And one way we are winning is the panic that is setting in on the American left over and, and and it surprises me that this is the issue, but maybe maybe it doesn't surprise you. The American left is having a meltdown over sanctuary cities. Now, sanctuary cities were their idea, and a very popular idea in recent years. Listen to the mayor of New York City, Eric Adams, a so-called New Democrat, talk about illegal immigrants in a way that a few years ago would have gotten you canceled, deplatformed, called a racist. This is a temper tantrum from the mayor of a self-proclaimed sanctuary city. Cut number 11. Listen to this. And let me tell you something, New Yorkers. Never in my life have I had a problem that I did not see an ending to. I don't see an ending to this. I don't see an ending to this. This issue will destroy New York City. Destroy New York City. We're getting 10,000 migrants a month. One time we were just getting Venezuela. Now we're getting Ecuador. Now we're getting Russian speaking coming through Mexico. Now we're getting uh, Western Africa. Now we're getting people from all over the globe have made their minds up that they're going to come through the southern part of the border and come into New York City. And everyone is saying it's New York City's problem. Every community in this city is going to be impacted. We got a $12 billion deficit that we're going to have to cut. Every service in this city is going to be impacted. All of us. And so I say to you, as I turn it over to you, this is some, some of the most educated, some of the most knowledgeable, probably more of my commissioners and deputy commissioners and chiefs live in this community. So as you ask me a question about migrants, tell me what role you played. All right, so he's, many- just, he's just ranting at this point. He's just, he's just walking back and forth, yelling about a state of affairs that rhetorically they, they begged for. Every one of these cities... New York, Chicago, Philadelphia, Los Angeles. These are all sanctuary cities. 10,000? How do you think Texas feels? How do you think Arizona feels? 
So they are really coming apart over this issue. And it's entirely their fault. It's entirely their policies. Notice how fast it's, it's now okay to talk about human beings as a problem, as a scourge. Oh, boy, if you'd done that a few years ago, you were the worst person ever. You were worse than Hitler. But now they have to deal with it. They liked the idea of sanctuary when it was just a word to them and a job for someone else. They don't like it when it becomes a job for them. By the way, of all cities to complain about influxes of outsiders, how amazing is it? I mean, history will, will, will say what a moment that the sitting mayor of New York City, if I can make it there, I can make it anywhere, is, is having a temper tantrum, is having a wet diaper meltdown over people coming to his city. But you know why? Because he's hearing from his own people. This is from the New York Post. Influx of migrants at Queens High School overflows classes, forcing students to other buildings. They're having a heat wave up there. I don't know if you know this or not. And it's so hot in, in parts of the Northeast, and the schools are not centrally air-conditioned. It's so hot that school is being canceled in some districts for heat. That never happens. Other, in other cases, they're moving the kids to the gymnasium or the library or the hallways just to get them away from the windows with all the sun coming in and the heat. So it's already a overcrowded situation. They've taken on more students because of the illegal immigrants that are admitted to the schools. And people are saying, what, what the hell's happening at my kid's school? I'm not asking an immigration question. I'm a parent. What happened here? You had one job. Why doesn't my kid have a chair to sit in in her class? Here's another story. Migrant, worker, migrant woman arrested after slapping New York Police Department cop trying to confiscate her unregistered motorbike. You see, it's hitting them in the real world. The left is very good at, at theoretical constructs. They're not so good at getting stuff done. They have wished for this, at least verbally, for years. Now they've got it. And it's, it's going to destroy New York City. You know, we're coming up, um, what's it, what's it going to be uh, on Monday? 20, what, 22 years? Since 9-11. So 22 years ago, the spirit of New York City was, you can't break us. Two 110-story buildings, fuel-loaded planes, thousands dead. You can't break us. You won't break us. 22 years later, some Ecuadorian women have broken them. Wow. Wow. Did the people change? I think the leadership changed. Anyway, let's talk about that and Reagan and all the breaking news. Very big show today. Uh, Mighty John Marshall, the records guy, the vinyl records guy, is going to be with us in our 6 o'clock hour. If you've got some old records, you want to ask him about uh, the value of one of those, uh, we'll take calls for him. We'll count down some collectible vinyl in our 6 o'clock half hour on KTSA. Uh, there's also uh, news about uh, Trump's legal cases and the Hunter Biden 
the the pending potential Hunter Biden indictment. We're going to talk about that here in a few minutes. I just um, I, I think it's important to to say to ourselves we've we've outlined the problems with 2020. We've outlined our discontent. We've we've got a handle on the 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 stuff that's wrong okay we've enunciated it we've said it we've reacted we've had our bud light moment we've had our target moment we've but but if we want to win next year we have to have a message of victory we have to have something that that hits the 18 and 19 year old today the way reagan hit the 18 and 19 year old me and people like me, a lot of people like me, did very well with the youth vote. Ronald Reagan did. And I, I know for me and for my generation, we were just sick and tired of hearing about nuclear winter and um, the inevitability of it and uh, how you, you, you people probably won't live to raise your own families and so forth and so on. And that kind of that kind of message and and teaching radicalized some of my classmates. They became, you know, far left nuclear freeze activists and marched out of the high school and all that stuff. But when Reagan said, "Look, it doesn't have to be like this. We can win this. We have better ideas," that sounded better to me. And think about where I was. I was in the worst place in the country to hear that, but it it worked. It made a difference. There has to be that kind of message now. It cannot be about how what if Reagan had what if Reagan had decided in 1980 I'm going to run on how Richard Nixon got screwed over by Watergate, or I'm going to run on how he didn't get enough credit for his brilliant detente foreign policy with Russia and China. I mean, that wouldn't that wouldn't have got the job done, and that would have made all kinds of sense to the experts. They would have thought that was just dandy. But that wouldn't have worked. So I think that, and I'm not talking about anybody here. I'm not endorsing anybody. I'm not dissing anybody. But I'm just saying, the more I thought about what we talked about yesterday, and this idea that you don't win because Biden's terrible, you win because you've got something great. Um, I mean, if you want to hope that maybe Biden is so terrible that you just sort of eke, eke it out by default, be my guest. I don't, I don't want to do that. I don't want to take that chance. That's the other thing. A lot of callers over the last few years have said, boy, if the Republicans are ever going to win nationally, they'd have to win by a lot. Because the rigging and the cheating can happen around the margins, so you have to win by so much that they can't deny it, if you will. And that just says to me, you need a transformative message. You need somebody who says, we, we can do a lot better than both parties have told you we can do. Because remember, in, in 1980, Reagan was basically saying, both parties have set their sights too low. Both parties have accepted too much scarcity and privation and that uh, our best days are behind us. Now, all candidates today say, our best days are in front of us and the best is yet. But they all learned that from him. They, that's just, that's just words. You know now you have to say that stuff. But I'm saying you have to actually mean that stuff. And that means you have to at some point let go of your disappointment and your alienation and your cynicism.
Yesterday came the news that uh, the special counsel for Hunter Biden uh, will go to a grand jury uh, before, by or before September 29th. It was revealed in a court filing and came as a surprise to some. Uh, but should it have, and what does it mean? Our next guest uh, here to answer that and some other questions, retired judge and former Bear County District Attorney Steve Hilbig. is on the KTSA Connecticut Quality Water Softeners Newsmaker Line. Judge, good afternoon. Welcome back. Well, thank you, Jack. The terminology, I wanted to be clear on this. When they say they plan to indict or seek an indictment, they're really saying we plan to go to the grand jury to see if they will indict him, right? Uh, yeah, but again, if the government recommends to the grand jury that an indictment be returned, 99 times out of 100 it's going to get returned. I know you've said that before, but here's why I asked that question. Could they arrange it or engineer it so that they could say, hey, folks, we asked for an indictment, but the grand jury didn't give us one? No, that's that's possible as well. Uh, I'm not sure that would happen, but my understanding is that the information had been filed against Hunter Biden, charging him with the gun offense, uh, and that information is still sitting there. So under the Federal Speedy Trial Act, uh, they're going to have to do something with it and or, or dismiss the case. And that's what led the prosecutor to inform mm-hmm. the judge that they were going to go to the grand jury. I think that maybe the prosecutor was just, you know, playing a little game and saying, you know, well, of course we didn't want to come out and say, well, yeah, the grand jury is going to do what we want them to do. I think it was just kind of like uh, a nicer way of putting it, but I would expect an indictment to come down. Okay. Does the uh, seeking of and the issuing of an indictment foreclose any other charges against Hunter Biden in the future? No. That doesn't. Now, what the argument's going to be about is whether or not the uh, pretrial diversion agreement in which the immunity agreement was contained, whether or not that provision will be effective against any uh, indictments that they come down on the, gun, on the uh, gun charge or any future charges. And what about uh, if there was a trial of Hunter Biden? Uh, is there a possibility, and in your opinion, a probability that President Biden would testify? Uh, it, regarding the gun charge, there's no need for him to testify. Uh, now, if he wanted to testify as a character witness, I mean, you know, he could certainly do that. But in terms of the facts of the case, uh, I, I, you know, I don't see any reason why he would be called as a factual witness regarding the gun charge. Well, I meant the character part. I mean, if you're defending Hunter Biden, is it a plus to have President Biden testify? And and, and is that something that would be, could, could there be a, a downside to that? Well, there's always downside to whatever you do. In terms of politically, there could be a downside. But the jury in federal court does not assess punishment. And that's usually where you have somebody come in and offer character evidence, if you mm-hmm. will. Uh, and I think based on what's been going around in the news and the laptop and everything, I think everybody knows Hunter's character. So, uh, you know, the, the president might write a letter on behalf of his son to the judge, to the sentencing judge or something like that. But it's but I don't see the, the president testifying at all. I, I just I, it, you, when you watch Joe Biden handle the Hunter issue, um, 
there's this kind of omerta, you know, the family sticks together and uh, he's the smartest guy I know and I'm so proud of him. Um, I've been waiting for the other shoe to drop. I've been waiting for, maybe I'm a cynic, but it seems like there might come a point when the Biden, you know, when Biden Incorporated decides that Hunter is just a troubled employee and it's time to let him, you know, sink or swim. Well, and that could happen with with the gun charge. In other words, if he gets convicted of the gun charge and gets a minimal sentence, or uh, even if he just gets placed on on uh, probation, if you will, uh, that could be them cutting him loose. I don't think that it has to be anything more dramatic than that. And of course, the the prosecutor, in telling the judge that they were going to seek an indictment, I think that it, he was relating the prosecutors relating only to the gun charge, not mm-hmm. anything else. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Uh, we're talking with uh, retired Judge Steve Hilbig on KTSA. Now, moving to the Trump uh, cases, uh, we learned today that the director of IT at Mar-a-Lago reportedly, according to the Washington Post, has made a deal with Jack Smith uh, to testify and avoid charges in doing so. I've, I've heard people say, Judge, that uh, Trump's real um, exposure or danger is that there's so many other people on trial with no resources or very little. Uh, there's so many people that could be tempted to turn on him. It's it's every man and woman for himself. Do you do you see it that way? Yes. Uh, I mean, when you have that number of people, uh, the, the government always tries to bring in some of the really small minnows along with the big whales to mm-hmm. see if they can pressure the minnows to go ahead and offer favorable testimony about the government's case. You know, mm-hmm. I just don't know what this person would testify to unless it would be something like, yes, Trump ordered me to destroy the tapes. I think that's one of the charges that they're alleging against Trump is that uh, he was trying to have someone destroy some of the surveillance tapes that uh, the government was seeking as evidence. So, I mean, that's always the possibility, but, you know, you don't know what the individual circumstances are. I mean, go back to uh, General Flynn. I think they were were, uh, trying to get him to uh, cooperate by saying they were going to charge his uh, son if he didn't cooperate. So, I mean, I I guess the way I look at this... You and I have talked about this many times. I don't think they want any of these other people. They want Trump. There's no, there's no value in in getting a Mark Meadows or a you know, some deputy assistant director of this. That Trump is the guy they want, and all of these others you call the minnows are all people that could potentially help them get that. Yes, except there is, uh, if the government goes to somebody and saying cooperate or else then there always has to be an or else. And so like who are Mark Meadows, who I didn't consider a mental necessarily, uh, but as the IT guy may it be, but to go to somebody and say cooperate or else, and they say, you know, no, I'm not going to cooperate, then you got to follow through on the threat. you got to hurt them bad so that the next time you go to a different person in a different case and you make that same threat, that person says, oh, my gosh, I saw what happened to Mark Meadows when he didn't cooperate, mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. I better cooperate in this case. Yeah. So there is and, a and benefit. You're right. I, you you did not call him that. I, that was those were my words. I apologize. Um, no. Let me ask you about the Fourteenth Amendment argument. I know we talked about this before. People are still making the argument, and they're still trying in a few states to keep Donald Trump off the ballot on the grounds of the idea that uh, Section Three, Fourteenth Amendment, says no person shall be 
uh, a candidate for these various offices, including President of the United States. Um, well, it actually says Senator, Representative to Congress, Elector of President or Vice President, or Officer of the United States, uh, if that person is engaged in insurrection or rebellion. So two questions. Is the President an Officer of the United States? Um, and do you think they have uh, a, an argument here, uh, these Federalist Society lawyers, to say that because of Trump's involvement in, even if it's not criminally culpable involvement, because of his involvement in the events of January 6th, under this uh, clause, he's not eligible to serve as president? Well, I think he is an officer of the United States, number one. Number two, do they have an argument? Uh, yeah, but it's a weak argument because, and it doesn't directly apply in this case, but for instance, anytime you have a, a criminal statute, the, the rule of law is, is that you're going to interpret the statute uh, strictly against the government. So applying it here, the Constitution doesn't, doesn't uh, uh, define what causes insurrection or what is insurrection. There is a criminal statute, 18 U.S.C. Uh, 2383, that makes a crime of rebellion or insurrection against the United States. Trump has not been charged with that. The, the January 6th uh, so-called indictment uh, does not charge him with that right. insurrection. So I don't see how it's going to fly. Yeah, there are going to be some lawsuits, but in essence, that's the best thing that could happen because I think it's going to get quickly to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court's going to say, no, sorry, guys, you lose. And I think that would be true even if he gets convicted of any of the federal charges. He's still not been convicted of insurrection. I know some people argue, well, you don't have to be convicted of it, but I, I tend to think that, no, whenever you are taking away such an important Power, that is somebody to run for uh, president and have the, the people decide on who's going to be their president, uh, I, I think that it's going to be a hard uh, hurdle to jump over to say, oh, what he did on January 6th constitutes insurrection, and therefore 14th Amendment applies and he's barred. Well, not only, I mean, that all sounds right, and you know more about this than I do, but the 14th Amendment and that language in particular refers to the Civil War and the Confederates. It was specifically about keeping people who had participated in the Confederacy from seeking office in the federal post-Civil War uh, U.S. government. And I don't know in what universe you would compare the events of the afternoon of January 6th to the Civil War. Well, you wouldn't, and I, I think that... It's a stretch when the Democrats try to say, oh, my God, that's an insurrection. <laughs> there was no violent overthrow, no violence attempted to overthrow the government whatsoever, which I think is a pretty standard uh, definition of an insurrection. But on the other hand, just because it was passed in relation to what happened after the Civil War doesn't mean that in the future, under the appropriate circumstances, that it couldn't be used again. Mm. But you and I agree what happened on January 6th was not an insurrection. Whatever did happen on January 6th was not the direct result of Trump. Uh, and, and so, you know, they're just trying to muddy the water and hope that, that maybe they'd get a liberal judge at the lower level to say, oh, yeah, he can't run, or you don't have to put him on the ballot. But I don't think the Supreme Court ultimately would rule that way. It's really crossing quite a line, and I know we're getting into the hypothetical, but it really is crossing quite a line if we now start saying 
that if you're the nominee of one of the two major political parties in this country in the future, you might not be able to be on the ballot in all 50 states. I mean, that is crossing. That is, I know the term banana republic gets thrown around a lot, but that that's a blueprint for mischief. Well, you're right, but again, they're trying to take factual uh, situation that doesn't meet the law and and try to shoehorn it into it, and yeah. and so again, it's it's the circumstance where I think at this point they're going to try anything. You kind of had I think a, a conversation about that a couple of days ago uh, when uh, Tucker Carlson was saying, "Well, are they going to assassinate Trump?" Uh, you know, it seems like they're just trying to do anything they can. Uh, to muddy the water, and if he does get elected, then t- there will probably still be a challenge unless the Supreme Court handles this prior to the election. I mean, if it goes before the Supreme Court and the Supreme Court says, yes, he has to be on the ballot, then I don't think there will be a legitimate challenge after he's elected, assuming he is elected. But it just – I don't know. It, it just shows to what ends people are trying to go to yeah. stop him. Yeah. Um, well, we used to – contest elections out on the campaign trail now we contest them everywhere but uh judge hillbig always good to have you on the show and to hear you and thanks for the time on this today we appreciate it well again thank you for having me let me play this again i want to play the beginning of the mayor adams uh rant again the mayor of new york city uh going on a tear about the migrant crisis in his city which he says will destroy the big apple cut number 11 and let me tell you something new yorkers Never in my life have I had a problem that I did not see an ending to. I don't see an ending to this. I don't see an ending to this. This issue will destroy New York City. Destroy New York City. We're getting 10,000 migrants a month. One time we were just in Venezuela. Now we're in Ecuador. Now we can Russian speaking coming through Mexico. Now we can. Uh, why Western does he Africa. say? Why do you think he says we don't see an end to it? Uh, every day at that podium, Corinne Jean Pierre says we got it under control. The numbers are going down. Mayorkas told Congress it's under control. So, if they're telling the truth in Washington, Mayor Adams, uh, there is an end in sight. Uh, what you're getting now is just the residuals. But we got it. We got you. This is a major meltdown, a major schism in the Democratic Party and their messaging about immigration. But it also points out the the weakness of, I guess I would say, leadership. Because we can all we can all observe the fact that hey, you guys wanted to be sanctuary cities, and now that you're being called upon it, you don't want to do it. Um, okay, that that's easy to say. But you know what else? You're the mayor of New York City. You're, this is like supposed to be emblematic of American can-do. You know, think of all the the inspiration, innovation, the whole idea, the Big Apple, right? And 10,000 people from Ecuador is the end of New York City? <laughs> I mean, it's, it's absurd. But the, the, the frustration is that he's getting it from down below. He's getting it from people, the people of his city are saying, hey, this isn't working. 
Um, th- this, to me, this is an opportunity to completely reframe the border debate. Who was that teacher you still remember? If for, for, for good reasons, not the one that hated you or you got in trouble with. Best teacher you ever had. Because they just did a study or some research at a university in England to test the theory that pupils in school do better, perform better, learn better when they have a teacher from the same racial or ethnic background as them. Which I think is an absurd claim. But I can see why you would study it because people say it all the time. They, it's a very, very popular thing for politicians to say teachers, excuse me, uh, children need to see at the front of the classroom people who look like them. I, I just think that is one of the craziest, most flimsy claims you can make. And I would use as an example the fact that when I think about my best teachers, first of all, almost all of them were women. So they didn't look like me. And as a kid, I thought they were very old, like a 100 or more years old. They were probably 45, but you know how kids are. They did not look like me. They did not look like an older version of me. They did not look like what I was going to grow up to be. I did not, in fact, want to be Mrs. Horgan or Mrs. Borden or my journalism teacher in high school or, or you know, no, no. They were just effective at conveying a lesson plan. They were effective at communicating and and creating interest in and and managing the classroom around a subject. Do you think kids need teachers who look like them? How far do we need to take that? Do they need to dress like the kids too? Do they need to be under a certain height? Drink from juice boxes? I mean, it's stupid. So they looked into it. And what they did is they looked at the statistics and they said, for example, all right, and this is in England, so they use a little bit of a different, they use some different terminology. Students of a black slash Caribbean background are consistently some of the worst performing student groups in the English school system. Their grades are well under the acceptable level for their age. Okay? And there's been a great push to get more teachers of black Caribbean origin into the classroom. And the percentage of those teachers has gone way up because it was deemed important that kids have a teacher who looked like them. It has not made a single difference in the performance of those students. Then they looked at Bangladeshi students, students of Bangladeshi ethnicity. And currently, a tiny fraction, like a fraction of 1% of all school teachers in England are Bangladeshi 
but those pupils are performing at a very high level. They don't have teachers who look like them. There's no chance they will anytime soon. That is not what is shaping the success or the educational outcome of kids. So when you say that, are you saying it because you've heard other people say it? Well, everybody knows, right? Or are you saying it because that's a a cover, that's like a fig leaf for quota hiring? We have to discriminate in our hiring because the kids need teachers who look like them. How do you explain that the highest levels of attainment, not only in the English school system, but in our school system, are among students who not only are themselves a minority, but who who are clearly minority represented in the ranks of teachers. And so I come back to what was the best teacher, the most memorable, influential, I never thought I liked this subject, but when I had this teacher in ninth grade or I had this teacher in the 11th grade, they communicated a passion for it. They opened my eyes to it. They helped me get it. They helped me learn it. I finally could do algebra. I finally could uh, write a composition. Did that teacher look just like you? Did that teacher look like an age-advanced version of you? Is that why it worked? Hey, this teacher's just like me. I mean, I guess that could happen. But I think that would be the exception, not the rule. What do you think? 210-599-5555. Um, Bill Maher said something interesting about this. He was uh, talking with Joe Rogan, and, and he said something interesting. He was trying to make the distinction between woke and liberal, because Bill Maher considers himself a liberal, but not woke. And he said, "Woke, the woke ideology is to see race first and to see it in everything. It's the key to everything. Cut number one. I'm always trying to make the case that liberal is a different animal than woke yeah because it is and uh, you can be woke with all the nonsense that that now implies um but don't say that somehow it's an extension of liberalism right because it's most often actually an undoing of liberalism so you can have your points of view and your positions on these things but don't try to piggyback on what i've always believed i have always believed as liberals do for example in a colorblind society that the goal is to not see race at all anywhere for any reason yes that's what liberals always believed all the way through obama going back kennedy everybody martin luther king that's not what the woke believe. They believe race is first and foremost the thing you should always see everywhere, which I find interesting because that used to be the position of the Ku Klux Klan, yeah. that we see race first and foremost everywhere. Yeah. Uh, so, again, you can have that position, but don't say that's a liberal position. You're doing something very different. Yeah, that's a great point, and, and I think well said. Uh, tell me what you think about that and about teachers. 210-599-5555. When I think about uh, teachers who are effective and, and powerful and inspirational, I always think about uh, in seventh grade, and I don't know why this was, but in seventh grade when I went to school, the social studies curriculum was the first semester was uh, 
the history of Russia. Yeah. <laughs> and the second semester was the history of China. And it actually seems like a really good idea because those are such important players. But when I think about it now as, a, as an adult, I, I cannot imagine how this young teacher, uh, Mrs. Camber, who was probably in her late mid to late 20s, I don't know how she psyched herself up for teaching a bunch of 7th graders about those subjects, but she did an incredible job. She also didn't look anything like me, for the record. Um, she made those histories like a cliffhanger story, like you'd get to the end of a class period and she'd say, well, we'll continue this discussion of the Tang Dynasty tomorrow, or we'll continue this discussion of what happened to Alexander the Great tomorrow. And you're like, no, 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 can we just... Nope, got to wait till tomorrow. It was, it was, I'll never forget how well presented and interesting that was. And it wasn't just me. She had that class in the palm of her hands. It had nothing to do with what she looked like. We don't even know what her ethnicity was. I don't know. She was a white woman. I don't know where she was from. That's what, that's what moves kids. That's what engages them. And that doesn't mean everybody will get an A, but boy, if a kid gets that caught up in or mesmerized by the presentation of the material, they, they've got their best chance of doing their best in that, in that class. Dennis Prager did an interesting commentary uh, recently where he was talking about how we don't teach evil anymore. And what he meant was not evil in the theological sense, but if you, if you don't teach the concept that, like, the Holocaust was evil, and if you take out the Gulag Archipelago, the evils of communism and collectivism, if you take out the idea that anything is objectively evil, it's kind of hard to teach history because then why was a war fought? Or why was there a revolution or a rebellion? To understand those things, you have to understand that at least in that time, if not for all time, people thought that, that a particular entity was evil. And he went on to say that if you want a more moral world, we all claim we do, right? We want our kids to be good. We want people to do the right thing. We say that all the time. There has to be a conception of evil. And when you think about it, if, you, if you're not teaching actual evil and there needs to be evil, then that opens the door to kind of invent evil. And the evil that's been invented is America is evil. America has been founded on evil. It's systematically racist and exploitative and transphobic and capitalistic and it's, it's polluting and it's sexist and it elected Trump and, and, and what have you. And um, he was saying they basically substituted their made-up evils, which is just stuff they disagree with, for actual evil. So this, this idea that kids need teachers that look like them feels like just another kind of the dog ate my homework invented excuse 
for why we're not getting it done, right? I mean, the, 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 the part of all educational reform talk that we don't say out loud is we're, we're producing worse and worse results. If you talk to a college freshman, they will tell you that freshman year of college now is the 13th grade. It's all this stuff that has to be remedially taught, ref- refreshed, reviewed, so that college students can write a, a research paper. Because they, it used to be if you graduated from high school, that implied you knew how to do that. And now the colleges are full of people who graduated from high school. Look, I got a diploma. But they don't know how to do it. Well, how'd you get the diploma? Mm, I did. So we keep coming up with excuses, right? The, 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 the forever excuse is we're not spending enough money on education. We're not paying teachers enough. No one ever says what enough is. Just whatever it is, it's not enough. It's gone up. It's still not enough. And then the schools aren't good enough. And then you don't care enough. And then you care too much because you're going to the school board meetings and now we're, we're coming up with new excuses like, oh, it's COVID, and there's not good ventilation, and the schools aren't green enough, and they're not welcoming enough for the fraction of a fraction of 1% of trans students. And, oh, the teachers also need to be ethnically in balance with the, with the um, you know, classroom comp- composition. So we need teachers that are in line or aligned ethnically and racially and sexually and genderly with with the student. But I mean, if you extrapolate that, or you take that argument to its logical uh, conclusion, would that mean we should segregate public schools? Like, should all the black students be in one classroom with a black teacher? I mean, nobody would say that. God, if you suggested that even half seriously, you'd have your head taken off, rightly so. But that's the logical conclusion of what they're saying if you take it to its full extent they're saying the best situation is everybody's the same and yet our own experiences their own experiences if they were honest tell us that's not true just ask yourself who was my best teacher and it wasn't your twin 210-599-5555. 210-599-5555. man named Leon Cooperman, who's a big-time fund manager, uh, has written a book called From the Bronx to Wall Street, 50 Years in Finance and Philanthropy. Um, he's a frequent guest on CNBC and financial uh, cable shows. But he's written a book in his old age about his worries for his grandchildren. He got very emotional talking about this on CNBC. I want you to hear what Leon Cooperman says, cut number six. You know, my father came to America at the age of 12 as a plumber's apprentice, no education. I went to public school in the Bronx, high school in the Bronx, college in the Bronx, and then I got a short center at Columbia Business School, which opened the door to Wall Street. I started my career in Wall Street the day after I got my MBA from Columbia. I had no money, I couldn't afford a vacation. I paid a lot of money, and I'm giving it all back. You're concerned about what uh, what happens? I'm concerned about the lefties. They don't get it. You know, what made me write the book is I have three terrific grandchildren, and I want them to understand the merits of capitalism. And I want them to be capitalists with a heart. He says, I just want to keep things straight. 
but I'm concerned that the people teaching our kids are not, and maybe are not even capable of, teaching the truth. I think that's the real crisis. I don't think the I don't think the ethnic racial makeup of the teachers is. Tell me what you think. Um, I was somewhere today, and they were playing what I guess you would call new country. I was in a, a business, and they were piping in new country. And I wanted to tear my ears off my head. And I, I, I consider myself, I, I have like a, a pretty wide taste or palate in music. I just, I, and I love classic country, and I love the old school, but this stuff now it all sounds like the same three songs and it's kind of emo and whiny and it, 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 I, I don't know. Is it just me? Anyone else feel that way? And, um, I heard a song I had never heard this before. I'd never heard of this group before. Don, you said you knew about them, right? Called yes, the pistol yes. Annie's. And what did you tell me about them? Um, Miranda Lambert is in that group. Miranda Lambert is in the Pistol Annies. And then you said, who? <laughs> um, the the song, I thought for sure, well, let me, should I say what I thought they said, or should we play the, 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 the line from the song first? I don't know. What do you think? Let's play the, let's play the hook first. Um... I'll tell you what I thought they said, but first, this is the song. It's got my name changed back. Um, because she's out of that marriage, I guess. I was, sh- I was absolutely sure while I was sitting there that they were singing, I got my night train bag. Like, you were going somewhere. You know, you're packed for the night train. I don't know. I mean, that's what it sounded like. <laughs> the, the, um, the art of mishearing song lyrics is a gift I think we all have, right? I mean, if there's ever been, has there ever been a song that you were sure they were saying one thing, and then when you saw the lyrics or you went to karaoke night or whatever it was, you found out it was something else. My, when I was in music radio, we were playing um, Freeze Frame by Jay Giles, the Jay Giles band. Remember that song, Freeze Frame? And they yell it at the beginning of the song, Freeze Frame! My mom, who had listened to the station, was sure they were saying grease paint, which doesn't really make any sense. But that's what it sounded like to her, grease paint, freeze frame. Um, I think one that a lot of people miss here, and they're adamant that they're hearing it uh, uh, right, is Blinded by the Light, uh, by uh, which is a Bruce Springsteen song that was covered by Manfred Mann. Uh, people are sure that Manfred Mann is singing Wrapped Up Like a Douche. And in fact, I read a while back that the band thinks that made the song more memorable and hence a bigger hit because people thought there was this really shocking lyric. 
And what they're saying is revved up like a deuce, meaning a deuce coupe, which is a hot rod Ford, wrapped up like a douche in the middle of the night. No. What's the song you've heard that you realized you heard wrong? 210-599-5555. See that girl? Watch her scream. Kicking the dancing queen. I've heard people say that. Abba, dancing queen. It's dig in the dancing scene. Dancing queen, not kicking the dancing queen. Uh, People also think uh, there's a line in there that says, dancing queen, feel the beat from the tangerine. It's actually tambourine. I know there are people, I know there are people that have misheard um, this one because they even did a, uh, a, an episode of, I think, Friends about this one. Remember the Elton John song, Tiny Dancer? Hold Me Closer, Tiny Dancer. And they had one of the characters on Friends mishear that as Hold Me Closer, Tony Danza. Which I guess could also work, but it's Tiny Dancer. What's one for you? 210-599-5555. Albert's on the radio. All right, Albert, what's a song lyric you've misheard? Yeah, Pearl Jam, Yellow Leadbetter. What did you hear? Uh, okay, YouTube it. I, you got to YouTube it and watch the video. Somebody's done it, and it says, give me fries on one of the verses. Give me fries. There's give a, fries. Uh, I, I, can, I can imagine that. Yeah, I can hear that. Uh, there's a comedian named Peter Kay who does a whole... Uh, comedy routine based on missing lyrics. I think he's British, maybe Australian, but I think he's British. Peter Kay is his name. This is his shtick. This is his his lane in comedy, uh, misheard song lyrics. And here's a sample of what Peter Kay does. Take a listen to this. You're all about karaoke. When you're singing on a karaoke, you haven't got a clue that those were words. I was singing, um, take that back for good. Wash your back, wash your back. Wash your back. Wong your back? What's this? Wong your back. I've been singing Wash your back for 15 years. Tell them when you go on a karaoke and you see lyrics, that's what they're supposed to be singing. You know that song, We Are Family? For years I thought they were singing, Just Let Me Staple the Vicar. Right? Who's right and who's wrong here? Listen. Just let me staple the vicar. It's all about. Just let me staple the vicar. We're giving love in a family doll. We're giving love in a family doll. <laughs> you know Duffy, Duffy the Welsh songstress. Last three years, I thought that poor cow were begging me for birdseed.
Stars, beautiful song. We used this on Live Aid. Do you remember? They showed it over this harrowing footage of these starving Ethiopians. <laughs> If you listen closely, they're actually singing about pork pie. Pork pie, what you got? Thinking nothing's wrong. I pledge money, me, pork pie. I pledge money. Believe it, can you? You know what I mean? Should have been on here. <laughs> Apparently, according to Michael, your burgers are the best. Them burger vans, you know, they have that fun first. Doing state Canadians and hot dogs. Speaking of hot dogs, I believe the hot dogs go on. Got a bit of rivalry here, Michael. <laughs> Celine's peddling hot dogs. It's on his patch. <laughs> Meanwhile, Katie Lang's singing about arseholes. <laughs> I don't waste my evenings. <laughs> anyway, that's uh, comedian Peter Kay. And he gets a lot of mileage out of misheard song lyrics. All right, it's okay. We've all got them. What's one that you thought you had right, and now you've learned uh, you were hearing it wrong, you were singing it wrong? 210-599-5555. Misheard song lyrics and Mighty John coming up. Like they're saying that you got to see it in print to believe it and that's the thing now that you can google song lyrics and there's karaoke now you can know how wrong you've been all these years you've been singing in the shower you've been singing in the car you've been singing to your wife or your husband and you've been completely wrong daniel on facebook says as a kid i thought the words to the neil diamond song were reverend in blue jeans that's all right when i was a kid i was pretty sure elton john was singing remember remember the song benny and the jets that's a very like psychedelic weird obscure hidden meaning you know candle no it's no candle in the wind all right in the elton john song uh, benny and the jets i was sure that he was getting away with saying 
Benny has got electric boobs and a mohair suit. It's just, I don't know, maybe I had a dirty mind. Had, have. But it's electric boots. All right, what's yours? 210-599-5555. Mark is on the Jack Riccardi Show. Hi, Mark. Hey, Jack. Um, when I was a kid, uh, I guess it was about 11, 10 or 11 when uh, Bee Gees came out with More Than a Woman. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I, fig- I figured this one out pretty quickly that if I was wrong, but I actually thought it sounded like bald-headed woman. <laughs> well, the Bee Gees have that kind of quivery, quavery delivery, right, where, yeah, it could be a lot of different things. Bald-headed well, woman. Well, now that you've heard that, you'll hear that every time you hear the I'm going to hear it every time from now on. You put it in my head. Mark, thank you. That's a good one. Richard uh, writes to Jack at KTSA.com, uh, ACDC. Dirty Deeds, Thunder Chief. Yeah, I can hear that. Dirty Deeds done dirt cheap. Steve is on the radio. Steve, good afternoon. Hey, how you doing, Jack? Man, I really I didn't realize that uh, song was a douche. I feel like a douche singing it like that now. <laughs> Damn. Well, don't be so hard on yourself. My God. Well, no argument there. Okay, thanks. Uh, but at any rate, uh, Louie Louie is, mm-hmm. is the song. Every night at 10. Mm-hmm. I tell her again, let go, girl, I got to leave. Mm. Yes. Wasn't that the song that people thought there were hidden meanings in and stuff? Oh, good God. Well, I mean, you saw Animal House. You know right. how they sung it. Yeah. And lay her so, again. I mean, that's yeah, all, that, yeah. song's, that song is just made for misinterpretation, right? Oh, it is. It's so fun yeah. when you drink beer and sing it. Yeah, I, I suppose yes, the... the, the the deeper into the bag you get, the the more the lyrics change. There you go. I but the the, the whole thing with Manfred Mann, nobody nobody can feel bad about mis misinterpreting that one. That's you. Everybody gets a pass on on Blinded by <laughs> the Light. Thank you, you, Steve. Appreciate Thank the call, you so sir. Very much. I appreciate you. You got it. I appreciate you. Uh, let's see. Um, Terry is on the Jack Riccardi show. Hi, Terry. Hey, hey, Jack. How you doing? Good. Hey. Thank you. Um, CCR, Bad Moon uh, on the Rise. You know, uh-huh. there's a verse in there that says, there's a bad moon on the rise. Well, it sounded right. like there's a bathroom on the right. <laughs> and well, it's I always good to know where the bathroom is, right? Hey, I got no argument with a buddy of mine about that. And I knew what the words were, but he said, oh, no, man, there's a, there's a bathroom on the right. And, uh, well, anyway, it was a big argument. No, it, it was just, no, it, That's no, a good, see, it's so good that we can, it's so good now that we can Google the lyrics and we can have the answer in two seconds so we don't have to lose friendships over it anymore. Terry, thank you. Uh, yeah. uh, Nick writes to Jack at KTSA.com. I always thought that Kenny Loggins in Footloose was singing, um, I'm Punching My Car. I think he's singing, I'm punching my card, right? Like, time card, like, you know, getting out of work. I'm, I'm punching my car. Uh, this is one I've heard a lot of people uh, misinterpret. Johnny Nash, the great Johnny Nash, uh, big 70s hit. I can see clearly now Lorraine is gone. Who is Lorraine, and why are we so happy that she's finally left? I can see clearly now the rain is gone, Johnny Nash. Jay is on KTSA. Hi, Jay. Anybody, uh, my sister was actually the one guilty of this uh, with uh, Monday Monday by Mamas and Papas. Uh-huh. They say uh, 
Monday, Monday, can't trust that day. She always thought it was, and she was singing along with it, can't trust that day. <laughs> like, can't trust really? what? Can't Say it again. Can't trust that day. She was like five or six. So yeah. I guess there's a pass. You get a you get a pass yeah, if you're under a certain age you get a pass. Thank yeah. you, Jay. Appreciate that. Uh, Jerry writes. I always thought Caribbean Queen by Billy Ocean was saying "Carry Me, Please." Um, Ray says Dire Straits, "Money for Nothing," and chips for free. Yeah, I mean the chips should be free. There's chicks for free. We got stacks and stacks of wax and wax. We got the pick to click the ones to watch the oldies but goodies and oldies but gooies. We got the top 700 records. Next week it'll be a golden oldie. Let's hear it. Well, of course, we've had um, the man behind moneymusic.com, Mighty John Marshall, um, on our show many times uh, before. And I hope to have him on many times to come. But I, I don't think I've ever introduced a guest on our show ever this way. John Marshall, we thought you were dead. I was. We, <laughs> i got to explain this. Yeah, we, go we've got, a, we've got a, a gentleman that listens to our show and has for many years, and he's from Maine, and he lived here, and he moved back to Maine. He still listens to the show on the stream. And recently he contacted me, and he said... Um, I, something like, uh, it, did, did the record guy pass away? And we hadn't had you on in a while, and, you know, I, I, I didn't know. I, I felt terrible. <laughs> he, I, I said, why, why would you ask that? And he said, well, there's an obituary up here of a guy with the same name, and I thought it might be, I thought it might be him. Ah. And I started searching, and I couldn't find that obituary. Uh, but I, I finally said to our producer, Elaine Rodriguez, we need to get John Marshall back on the show, but first we need to find out if we can. So I was really happy when she got back to me and she said, one, he's still alive, and B, you've got him on Thursday. <laughs> yes, I'm happy to be here, that's for sure. <laughs> it's I've never been more grateful to hear your voice than this time. So anyway... Um, for folks that don't know, you're a, you, you had a, a long career in music radio. You are a prolific record collector and enthusiast, and you've sort of curated this, I guess you'd say, value guide or appraisal guide. What have you got, over right. a million records? Is that right, in your guide? Over a million listings, over 75,000 different recording artists. Okay. So these are the current going, what collectors are paying you know, values doesn't mean you're absolutely going to get this, but this right. is this is roughly what collectors are paying uh, for this particular album or this particular 45 at this current time, right? Absolutely, that's right. And generally, time is the great factor. Time increases values. People have asked me lately, you know, with Jimmy Buffett passing away, uh, Gary Wright passing away, mm. does that affect the value of their records? Generally, no. The death of a recording artist does not affect values. So, mm. with other forms of collectibles, it might be true. And 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 on the other hand, something that can affect value and surprise people is, you know, uh, the number of or the scarcity of a particular pressing. So it, it could be a very, it could be an artist who's like water, they're everywhere. But if you've got the right version of that Rolling Stones album or the right version of that Beatles 45, that one is going to be exponentially more valuable than the the regular ones, right? 
Lots of times, little things make a big difference. You're absolutely right. The very same record could have different values depending on features like the color of the label, mm. the font of the print. Uh, always there's something that, that differentiates from other issues of that particular record. So if you have a question about the value of some vinyl you've got in your hot little hands right now, give us a call, and Mighty John will help you out, 210-599-5555. And we're going to count down the top 10 uh, records with uh, the current value of $125 or more, uh, starting at number 10 with a Motown classic from the Supremes, You Can't Hurry Love. What's the story here? Well, Motown overall, very collectible. The Supremes, very collectible. This 45, You Can't Hurry Love, number one hit for them. With its picture sleeve, current value up to $125, a hundred of that. It's just for that picture sleeve. Mm. They are always by themselves worth more than the actual record. And I guess durability, right? I mean, the record can yeah. survive a lot of abuse, but the picture sleeves get tattered or lost or whatever, right? Exactly. Exactly. What if so, you've got the picture sleeve, but somebody wrote on it or put their name on it? Does that degrade its value? It does, but it's really up to the buyer as to how much of a degrade it is. Uh, generally, any writing or any uh, scotch tape or anything like that to hold it together generally costs at least 30% of value. Yeah. Where were you to tell us that 50 years ago, John, right? <laughs> Uh, when we were fighting with our, when we were fighting with our siblings over our records, and we were writing our names on the picture sleeves. All right, number nine. Uh, we just mentioned them, the Beatles, "Long and Winding Road." Well, this is the last forty-five of the Beatles. It uh, really is about their career. It's the end of a long and winding road. With its picture sleeve, this is on Apple Records, currently up to a hundred and fifty dollars. A hundred of that for the picture sleeve. Wow. So there probably are collectors out there. I'm guessing that have the record, and are trying to procure a sleeve to go with it. Yes, and there are collectors that collect just the picture sleeves. They don't collect the wow. records at all. So That's kind of kind of weird, weird. if you ask me. <laughs> That's a little weird, but okay. To each his own. Uh, big 60s hit, Procol Harum. Uh, what's the story on this album at number eight? Yeah. Their first album, Procol Harum, called Procol Harum, featuring, of course, uh, Whiter Shade of Pale. Big hit for them. The album, currently up to 200 bucks. I never heard of this record label, Duram? Durham? Duram, yes. Yeah. yeah, they and the Moody Blues were on that label. Oh, okay. Yeah. Uh, number seven, we've got a Michael Jackson 12-inch single version of Don't Stop Till You Get Enough, $200. Well, you know, 12-inch singles were very popular in the 1980s, especially club DJs loved them. So some of them can be quite collectible. Michael Jackson's Don't Stop Did You Get Enough, as you say, currently up to 200 bucks. Very nice. So that would be a lot more than if you had just the 45 of it, I guess, right? Yeah, the 45 would be up to around 20 to $25. Now, I know with some of the records you've talked about in the past, there's also a big differential in whether you've got the mono version of it or the stereo version of it, particularly with albums. And, and when did that start to change to where mono went to stereo? Or it, I guess for a certain period of time, a record company would often put out both versions, right? Well, in the be beginning of the 1960s, it was very difficult to find a record in stereo. Mostly everything was mono. By the end of the 1960s, everything was in stereo. So to find a mono copy would be rare. And it was around 65 to 66, 67 in that era. Record companies didn't know what to do, so they put them out in both mono and in stereo. And depending how many were released in each version, 
Mm. Uh, that's the value difference. So, uh, for example, well, one recently that came out in Mono 1980, Billy Joel's album. Uh, uh, can't remember the, call, the name of the album. Uh, the Stranger album. Uh, stereo copies up to about $20. Mono copies, if you find one, up to $2,000. Why would they have put out a mono copy of Billy Joel in 1980? Yeah, well, somebody goofed at the pressing plant is what happened. Oh. You know, copy, copies got out. So, yeah, wow. but mono and stereo can make a big difference. For example, The Doors album I came across at a yard sale not too long ago. Uh, their first album, The Doors, featuring Light My Fire. Stereo copies up to about $40. Mono copies currently up to $750. Check your check your labels. Check your album covers. All right, number six. I, I did not know that Chuck Berry would have also been on a 78? Yeah, they made 78, rock and roll 78s, right up until 1960. So this came oh. out in 1958, Chuck Berry's classic rock and roll song, Johnny Be Good. Current value up to $200. The 45 version would be up to about $50. Yeah, a lot more common. Okay. Yeah. Um, what was the, so th- what happened to the 78? I mean, was it just not as convenient as 45s? Or what, what, what did in the 78? Well, yes, just not as convenient as 45s. He just press a 45 and a 78, uh, just as a matter of convenience more than anything else. So the 70 went wait bye bye. I think the last number one 78 was Tommy Edwards' "It's All in the Game." It's all last in the game. Which written by, by way, a former was, vice president of the United States. Yes, under was Kelvin loved Coolidge. that story. <laughs> <laughs> what I was love telling that story? Yeah. <laughs> Right, I feel underdressed for this music. We've got Mighty John Marshall, the records guy, with us. We're going to continue our countdown, and we're going to take some calls about collectible vinyl. His website, by the way, is moneymusic.com, and when you go there, there's some cool features. You'll want to check it out every day, and uh, he adds to it every day. But you can also find out how to get, what do you call it, a, a, a value guide or a price guide, John? Is that the best way to put it? A record appraisal guide, yeah. Record appraisal guide. So when yep. people obtain this from you, then they yep. can plug it in and do the, the valuation thing you're doing, yep. you know, album by album or record by record. And the, so the, the more records you have, the more this thing is going to pay for itself. Yeah, it's twenty four ninety five, and we pay the shipping. It's on a flash drive. You just pop it into your computer. Everything is listed alphabetically by recording artist, and you can look right up uh, what you need to know. That's beautiful. Uh, yep. Some questions. Let's take some questions from Mighty John, 210-599-5555. And Mike is on KTSA. Mike, good afternoon. Hello. Um, yeah, I've got uh, a record, uh, The Doors, Full Circle. It was after Jim Morrison passed away. They were still using the name The Doors. I believe Ray Manzarek was still uh, working the band under that name. It had a big mosaic in it that was quite impressive, and I have that. I'm just wondering if that might be worth anything. Well, if it's in stereo, it's worth up to about $25. If it's in mono, it's going to be up to around three to $400. Cool. There was a second you, record that I used to have yeah. called The Golden Scarab. I think I hawked that one. But I was just curious what that one would be worth. Uh, by The Doors? Yes, The Golden Scarab. 
that is not a U.S. issue. Uh, it sounds like an import or either a bootleg. Uh, there's no U.S. issue of a record called Golden Scarab by the Doors. So wow, yeah. Now bootlegs. Now, we explain, can't... Mighty John, why if it's European issued or overseas issued, there yeah. there's no uh, a set uh, appraisal value. Well, one way we put a value on a record is to know how many were released. Those figures are available or were available from U.S. record companies, but they're not accessible overseas. Mm. So collectors tend to put a slightly lesser value on what we call the import as its counterpart released in the States. As for a bootleg, they're considered uh, illegal, and you can't put an established value on anything that's illegal. doesn't mean somebody wouldn't buy it. You just right. can't put an established value on it. You have to meet them in a dark alley or something. So. All right. <laughs> yes. Uh, let's see. Molly has a Doobie Brothers question from Mighty John Marshall. Molly, how you doing? I'm good, Jack. How are you? I'm good, thanks. So I've got a Doobie Brothers, best of the Doobies, um, signed by them. And the record itself, the LP, is clear. Um, does that have any, does that add any value? Well, the, the, the great band, one of my favorites, but they're not extremely collectible. Just because they're popular doesn't mean they're collectible. So the record, the album by itself would be up to around $20. The autograph can actually hurt the value of the record. Because anytime you alter a collectible from the way it originally was released, you can hurt the value. It never originally came with an autograph. And mm. so it's been altered. However, there are collectors that would be more interested in the autograph than the record, but you would have to have it authenticated that they actually signed it. Okay. So, wow. Okay. Okay. So, so the autograph collector might want it, but the record collector might not want it. Yeah. I mean, now if it can be authenticated, the record co collector might say, okay, now that it's authenticated. But gotcha. you know, I have a friend that can sign every one of the Beatles signatures where you can't tell the difference. So you really got to be careful. <laughs> All right, Molly, thank you. That That's interesting. I, I, I guess, and I know you've had in the past, you've said there, there is a whole, there are whole other categories of collectors. There are people that are into, um, you know, like other objects of art relating yeah. to rock and roll or certain artists. And that doesn't always can, you know, uh, comport to the person that is just a record uh, collector. Yeah. So what you're saying basically is kind of like with classic cars, you restore the car to its like new condition. Exactly. People want the record to look like it looked the day it came to the store. Yes. Yep. Uh, John has a question from Mighty John on KTSA. Hi, John. Hey, good evening. Thank you, Professor, for taking my call. Mr. Marshall, thank you for taking my call. I have two questions. Uh, I have an opportunity to buy a complete KISS collection from A to Z unboxed in the vinyl cellophane and the same thing with everything Led Zeppelin ever did. Those two things unopened. I'd like to know what their world and have a second question I'd like to ask you, Mr. Marshall. Yes. Okay. We're just going to stick to the, those two, those okay. two right there. That's going to be your only question. Well, yeah, so I, what, I, what would you tell him? Well, each, each record, each record in the set is he's going to buy the whole uh, collection. Each one is going to have a different value. The big one for yeah. Kiss is uh, Kiss the Originals, which is a repackaging of their first three albums. Uh, that can sell up to about $600. That's probably the big one for Kiss. Led Zeppelin, uh, probably Led Zeppelin three, the one with the movable wheel, uh, is their most collectible, up to about $300. So 
and whether it's a, an original or a reissue, that can make a huge difference as well. And we tell that by the catalog numbers on the covers, or on the covers and the vinyl. So it's tough to say exactly with Led Zeppelin unless I know whether they're originals mm. or reissues, because they look the same, but those yeah. catalog numbers tell us the difference. He did say something that I know would catch your attention. He said the records were still in the plastic or the cellophane, and that's a no-no, yeah. right? Well, you know, I'd be leery about it. I'd want to see that that record is actually inside the cover. And people think because it's still sealed, well, that's going to make a big difference. Well, you know, for a hundred bucks, you can buy a shrink wrap machine and can reseal any record. So that's not mm. really something that I'm interested in. If it's still sealed, break the seal, leave the cellophane on so that the buyer can see the vinyl is inside. And you said that actually also protects the record because it doesn't warp, right? Yeah. Right. So, yes. Good. Good point. Yes. Let it keep breathe. the plastic, but open the plastic and make sure that the right record is in the right uh, the right yep. sleeve. Um, we were counting down. We were up to uh, let's see, number five. Yeah, number five was another Motown uh, forty-five uh, by the Four Tops. Motown again, very collectible. Four Tops, one of the hits for them called "Just Ask the Lonely." With its picture sleeve up to two hundred and fifty bucks, and about two hundred of that is for that picture sleeve. And number four, we got Wil we got Wilson Pickett, and what's the story with this one? It's seven hundred dollars. The wicked Wilson Pickett, of course, most famous for Mustang Sally and Land yeah. of a Thousand Dances. Yeah. This one came out in nineteen seventy three, long after his career had really peaked. Didn't sell all that well. It's called On the Stage of Life on Soul Pot Records, up to seven hundred dollars. So is that a case of just scarcity? That has a lot to do with rarity, and also it falls into a category known as Northern Soul, a genre of music that is very collectible. Mm -hmm. uh, a few minutes ago, Don uh, played this song coming out of the, the uh, break. It's, it's a version of Hard Day's Night. What's the story here? Well, George Martin, he was the producer for the Beatles, produced mm -hmm. all the hit records back in the 60s. One of them, of course, A Hard Day's Night. So he put out on his own an instrumental version, but the picture sleeve pictures of the Beatles, and that's what makes it a collectible. So with its picture sleeve, up to $1,000. I had heard that music before. I did not know that when they issued the record, they put the pictures of the Beatles on it. Yes. The Beatles Seems like you wouldn't be able to get away with that. Well, he could get away with it. <laughs> yeah, so he could get away with it, yeah. Uh, Pink Floyd. We don't mention Pink Floyd very often in this segment, but this is a very collectible album from Pink Floyd. Well, actually, it's a 45, one of the very first 45s. It was called See Emily Play, with its picture sleeve up to $1,500. And the Play. number one most collectible record for September, and again, I don't think we've mentioned them before, Velvet Underground. Velvet Underground and Nico, she was the female lead singer on that record, called All Tomorrow's Parties. The value for the record is worth up to about $700. The picture sleeve, that's where the money is. All Tomorrow's hmm. Party's up to $5,000. Wow. Are the Beatles on that picture sleeve, too? <laughs> uh, I wish. No. It's, it's a black and white picture sleeve, so I'll be All on the right. for it. Keep those picture sleeves. Uh, speaking of the uh, Beatles, Frank has a Beatles question from Mighty John Marshall on KTSA. Hi, Frank. Hello. How are y'all? I have uh, Sergeant Pepper's uh, LP, yeah. and uh, and it did not have much. I didn't uh, get back is not on that album. 
I was infuriated because I never heard it get back until I saw it in the movie. And I went back and looked at my album, and it's not on there. Looked a couple times. It's the album from England. I'm sorry? So, it's from England? It's from England, yes, sir. Yeah, so it's so, a British issue, which can have different yeah. tracks on it. In the States, uh, a mono version would be up to around $600, and a stereo version, an original would be up to 150 So whether yours is mono or stereo, kind of base it on those two prices. All right. All right. Thank you. You're All right, thank welcome. you, Frank. Appreciate it. Again, if you want your own money, uh, your uh, own uh, record appraisal guide, uh, go to moneymusic.com, and you can find out how to get that. And you can also check out a lot of free information, free intel on record collecting from Mighty John Marshall, who is, we're happy to say, still alive. <laughs> Yay! <laughs> and as long as he is, and as long as I am, we'll keep uh, we'll keep doing this. Yeah, check but, out uh, I hope YouTube you're doing well, and... Well. It's it's great to have you on the show. Great to hear your voice, John. Thank you so much. Thank you, Jack. Take care. I'll talk to you soon. If you listen to our show, you probably have picked up on the fact that um, I'm a pretty big fan of Tucker Carlson. I liked him on Fox, and I like the stuff he's doing on X. Um, I don't agree with him on everything, but I, I like the way his mind works. Until now, I, I, I really just don't know what the point of this latest um, uh, Tucker on X segment is. Um, let me give you the background. He... He does a 45-minute interview with this man named Larry Sinclair. Never heard of him, right? Larry Sinclair is the guy with a story to tell. Um, I'll leave it up to you as to whether or not you think it's an incredible story or, for that matter, even a credible story. But Larry Sinclair says that uh, back about 25 years ago, he met did cocaine with and had sex with Barack Obama. Here's how he tells Tucker how they met. Cut number three. There was, there was no doubt what I was looking for. Okay. Uh, and he picked me up at my hotel in Gurney and drove into Chicago. This is the limo driver. Pulled up in a bar outside, and there's this guy that's introduced to me as Barack Obama. It was literally that casual that... Had you ever heard of him? No. Did the driver know him? Yep. The driver definitely knew him because the driver said that he was a friend. So this guy was in town. He was visiting the Chicago area for the graduation of a relative uh, from the Great Lakes Naval Training Center. That's why he had the limo in the hotel because he was from out of town. And um, he... Tells the limo driver, I want to party, take me to, you know, take me someplace. I want to meet somebody. I want to have a good time. The limo driver understands what he means, takes him to a place, hooks him up with Barack Obama. And then Sinclair tells Tucker, and you should be grateful to me because I listened to the whole thing and I don't recommend it. He tells him how they uh, connected, cut number four. I start to put a line on a, on a CD tray, 
And I just happened to notice that he pulls something else out of his pocket. And next thing I know, he's got a little pipe and he's smoking. So I don't have an issue with it. I mean, some people smoke, some people snort. Smoking the cocaine. Yes. So as I'm doing a line, I just start. This is the part where you, you know, you kind of make your move to to see where things are going. So I just started rubbing my hand along his thigh to see where it was going. And it went the direction I had intended it to go. Um, so the night became somewhat active sexually and drug-wise in the limo. Why, why would we want to know this? First of all, I don't know if I believe this guy. He, he, do, he doesn't come across as credible to me at all. He's totally, he has no, no proof. Seems kind of sketchy and shifty. And um, I know you're not getting the visual, but the visual, trust me, if you're only hearing this, the visual would not make it better. Um, but I guess I'm just wondering, like Tucker Carlson, you, you've got this brand and this platform and this following. Why would we even want to know this? I'm, I'm, I'm by no means a Barack Obama fan, but this is not news I can use. He's already been president. He is still a, a powerful person. I would argue he may be very powerful in the current administration. But even if all of this is true, it wouldn't change anything. It wouldn't change the arc of history. It wouldn't alter anything that's going on today. It wouldn't probably ever, it probably wouldn't alter anything among other things because it would be easy to deny and nearly impossible to prove. I, I just, I'm trying to figure out, maybe you know, I mean, like, wh what's the angle here? I went through the whole thing. It seems kind of random. You start to wonder, like, Tucker Carlson's one of the most skeptical people you'd ever meet, right? You can tell by watching him. Like, why did he believe this guy, or does he believe this guy? And if he doesn't, then why did he put him on? And even if he does, why did he put him on? I mean, if you came to me with this story... And you said, I, I, I swear, I crossed my fingers, this happened. I mean, crossed my heart, not my fingers. I crossed my heart, this happened, I swear this happened. And it's just your word. I, I just have no interest in it. And, and again, I think even for people that despise Barack Obama, like, where, where, are, we, where are we going with this, you know? But that's the deal. That's, that's this week's uh, episode of Tucker on X, as they call it. Um, now, if somebody was running for president and, you know, you, you had some sort of expose on them, I think that would be different. Uh, but this is like finding out that, you know, Warren Harding had cocaine-fueled sex. I don't know. It just doesn't, doesn't really matter anymore. I, I know people complain that Christmas shopping starts too early or the stores go crazy for Christmas too early. But Christmas shopping takes some time, right? You You probably have to buy multiple presents you have different people for whom you're shopping maybe you have kids you have to buy a gift for all your kids stuff like that i i can i can see where that would be a season of shopping halloween candy is one one trip right you go, you go to the store you get whatever you need you know what you need you you, you know how many people are coming to your house because you've lived there you've had halloween before it, it it's not something you have to do a lot of planning for right i buy a couple of bags of snickers i buy 
the variety pack, whatever. Why is it in the stores so early? So the question on the JR poll, therefore, is it too early to be um, buying Halloween candy? 84% say yes, 16% say no. Now, speaking of shopping, do you like Goodwill? Do you like to go to Goodwill stores? Interesting thing happened at a Goodwill store in Goodyear, Arizona. Goodwill in Goodyear. Uh, and here's how one of the local television stations told that story. Take a listen to this. Tonight, an unusual donation is sparking a police investigation. People donate, as you know, a lot of stuff at Goodwill. But over the weekend, someone dropped off a human skull at a Goodyear store near Yuma Road in Saraval in Goodyear. Team 12's Gabriela Baquera is there, and she explains where it came from. Goodwill gets dozens of donations every day, but when one employee at this Goodyear store found what they believe to be human remains, they called the police. Police released an image of that skull, and just to warn you, you may find it disturbing. This is mm. an unusual situation. A human mm. skull with few teeth and a glass eye made its way into a pile of donations at Goodwill. They thought that was highly unusual, and they did anticipate that it was real and so they called police just to be sure. Those employees were right. The medical examiner's office confirms it is a real human skull. It appears to be historic, ancient, and um, it does not appear to have any forensic value at all. And what that means is that no crime is um, really attached to this skull. Police are investigating who made the donation. It was dropped off at some point over the weekend with other taxidermy items. Animal types of taxidermy, um, replica, animal bones, things of that nature. It's now undergoing tests animal at the medical bones. examiner's office where they'll figure out exactly how old the skull is. Goodwill did do the right thing. Anything suspicious should always be reported. And certainly anything yes. that appears to be human remains should be reported to police yes. right away. A spokesperson for Goodwill of Central and Northern Arizona says its employees followed protocol by calling the police. They're cooperating with the investigation. Reporting in Goodyear, Gabriella Becerra, 12 News. I feel like Gabriella Becerra maybe drew the short straw in that newsroom. Like, I, I don't think... I don't feel like there was a lot of competition among the other reporters to get the, 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 the skull story. But she's all over it. I mean, she's very thorough. She has all the angles covered. Uh, person dropped off a skull and animal bones. It's, it's not a trash dump. It's, it's Goodyear. I mean, well, it's Goodwill in Goodyear. Uh, I wonder if there's a Goodyear tire store in Goodyear. That would be confusing, right? Or just for me, maybe. Anyway, um... There may or may not be a crime. It is a human skull. You know what I was wondering? First of all, um, they like to try stuff on at Goodwill. Would you would you need to try it on, or would you just buy it? You know, as it. But what like what part of the store would that be in? Like, would it be in men's tops, or home home furnishings, or? Where would you display the skull? The hat department. The hat department. There you go. There you go. Just just use it to model some some baseball caps. Yeah, it's a gruesome looking thing. I hate when people do that. I hate when people have stuff that you should just throw away, and they put it for they put it in the garage sale. You know what you're doing when you say that? You're saying, I know this is crap, but you may be so stupid that you'll pay me for it. 
or they donate it to like a Goodwill or a Salvation Army. I mean, have a little, have a little respect for your fellow man. You know, if you were just going to throw it away, go with that first impulse. You know what I'm saying? Like, nobody wants this human skull. I, um, seems like it was a big story in that town. Like, you know, everybody in Goodyear was all over the, it's like, it's like, uh, CSI Goodyear. But anyway, um, they have not, uh, determined that it's attached to any crime or anything. And as far as we know, as of tonight, no one in Goodyear, Arizona is missing their head. So. Story has a happy ending. Gabriella's all over it. All right. Uh, tomorrow, we kick into the weekend with The Dish. You can talk about your most recent restaurant experiences in our 6 o'clock hour, and I hope you will. We always enjoy hearing from you about all of that. Don't forget, this show is not only live from 4 to 7 on KTSA, but it's available as a full episode podcast. You can find The Jack Riccardi Show at KTSA.com or anywhere you like to get your other podcasts. Have a good night.